Welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. How, how does your faith kind of play into it or does it play into it? What can be done about it? When I say the church, I'm talking about uh, evangelical white Christians and the black folk who attend their churches. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you're either viewing this on YouTube or you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Prime. We always want to hear from you with regard to the podcast, how we're doing. You can reach me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net, Smith at cox.net let us know how we're doing and what we can do to make this podcast more beneficial to you i am very happy today uh, to welcome uh, to the podcast mrs natalie tellis robinson who is running for judge for family court here in the baton rouge area mrs robinson thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us thank you for having I'm happy to be here. Give me an idea of who you are. We were talking okay. about your dad a minute ago. T- yes. Tell me tell me who you are. Okay. So, um, like you said, I'm Natalie Tellis Robertson. Um, my dad is Claude Tellis. Yes. Um, I'm, you know, from the Tellis family, obviously. My grandparents settled here in Baton Rouge in 1944 uh, to teach on Southern's campus and to live on Southern's campus. And so my dad grew up. Um, partially on Southern's campus and then moved off campus um, to a home in Scotlandville and graduated from Southern University Lab School. Uh, My dad left Baton Rouge to go to Michigan State and um, and and met my mom in the process and when he finished he came back to Louisiana for medical school at LSU and um, and then was was enlisted in the army so took a job with walter reed army medical center which is um right on the time i was born and so i grew up in dc um until i was 18 years old and went to howard university and um, my parents moved back to baton rouge when i was at howard and i followed them so i followed them and um, was enrolled in southern university law center and became an attorney here in baton rouge and i've been here went to new orleans for five years to practice family law and came back and and so i have a, a long history um, you know, long roots and attachments to Baton Rouge and a long history practicing in the family law realm. So you went to Egypt and then came back. To I the did. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. I, I'm glad you came back to the promise. Yeah, I am too. It's a Southern University Law Center was very welcoming, mm-hmm. very nurturing, a great place to, to be trained as an attorney. Yes, ma'am. I, uh, my, my background is that I was born and raised here, uh-huh. went down there to go to seminary, spent nine years down there, three years in school, six years pastoring a church. I always call New Orleans Egypt. Okay, and, okay. And, and when okay. I get back to Baton Rouge, I yes. say this is the promised land. Yes. So you were born in Washington, D.C. I was at Walter Reed. Uh-huh. So what <laughs> distinctions uh, do you see as someone who was raised in D.C. and mm-hmm. now lives in Baton Rouge? What What is the greatest distinction that you see between D.C. life and Baton Rouge life? 
mostly um, Washington, D.C. has a lot of things to offer in terms of things to do mm-hmm. and a lot of things to offer in terms of diversity mm-hmm. and um, and different businesses and different restaurants and, and just a lot of culture, mm-hmm. a, lot, a lot of um, multiculturalism mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. And so not that Baton Rouge doesn't have that, but it's just something that I really noticed when I moved um, from Washington, D.C. to Baton Rouge. It was just smaller, a little slower, um, a little uh, friendlier, mm-hmm. more welcoming. Um, it, it, diverse in that, you know, that there is diversity in uh, in Louisiana's history um, in terms of, you know, who settled here and, and how Africans mixed with French and and things of that nature, the Italians, um, Nova Scotians, people like that. Mm-hmm. But in D.C., there are you know several different nationalities, several dif- different ethnicities. Um, you know, I had a lot. There were a lot of I had a lot of Jewish influence in my life. Um, a lot of Jewish people that I went to school with, and so the the thing that I noticed most when I moved here was um, the not the lack of, but just not as the population, the Jewish population wasn't as big. Mm-hmm. The Asian American population at the time didn't seem as big. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of um, I sort of missed that when when I first moved over here, just not not being exposed to all those different, you know, um, minorities. What is it that drew you to law? Well, um, you know, as I was growing up in school, I sort of um, was best at English and speaking and writing. And my grandfather, who lived here in Baton Rouge, just always thought that, you know, that the way that I would debate with him would make me a good lawyer and, and the way that I could speak and, co- and communicate and express myself. So he thought that would make me a good lawyer. And that was just kind of always in my head that I so would go to law school. So you weren't one of those kids who was told to just go sit in the corner and be quiet. You, no, no, no. You were yeah. allowed to speak. Yeah, I was allowed to speak. And <laughs> my dad said that, you know, that I was something else. I would, I would, I would stand up for my brother mm-hmm. um, when my grandfather and I would talk. And, and we were very close and um but you know we would we would spar a little bit mm-hmm. and so but I do I think he liked that debate and so he encouraged um he encouraged that he encouraged me to go to law school and his wish really was for me to take law okay. at southern okay um how did you gravitate towards family law they're all different types of law right uh what what drew your attention to family law in particular well, so I started out, you know, thinking that I might want to do entertainment law mm-hmm. just because I, I think probably it just looks sparkly. And I thought I could go to New York or Los Angeles and and, um, you know, interact with celebrities and, and, and work on contracts and things of that nature. Um, but it, it, was, it turned out to be a little different when I got out of law school. I. I took a job that was available to me, and that mm-hmm. first job was in Opelousas, Louisiana, clerking for Judge Alonzo Harris. Okay, and so I was exposed to criminal law and family law, and um, and some civil personal injury cases. But while I was there. Or, or it may have been shortly after I got back to Baton Rouge and I clerked for Judge Guidry for a little while, Judge Laverne. John Michael Guidry. John Michael Guidry, yes. 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 Um, I clerked for, for John Michael Guidry for a little while. And while I was there, Judge Laverne called me and said he had a vacancy. Luke Laverne. Luke Laverne, okay. yes. And so he was a family court judge. Yes. And, and for people who don't know, the legislature created um, a family court 
um, you know, just so that family court issues could be heard. Mm -hmm. And then I believe it was in 1990 that... um, the it was redistrict there was some redistricting going on and some lines were drawn so that a minority judge could be elected in family court and mm-hmm. judge laverne was the first minority judge to be elected um to the family court bench yes. and so um and if i'm not mistaken i was the first law clerk so i was the first black law clerk in family court and um, and Judge Laverne and I just we you know it was good that I had him as a mentor because he really um, trained me and showed me you know how I had to pay attention to the law mm-hmm. and how I were I would be able to apply the law to the facts. Um, he really humanized it for me as did Judge Lisa Woodruff White. Mm-hmm. And my journey really began you know working with Judge Laverne. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know once I I clerked for him for a year I said well this is this is what I understand. This is what I know. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like interacting with people. I like the stories. And when I started looking for a job, um, I started looking for a family law firm that I could go to. There was nothing available in Baton Rouge, but there was an availability in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I landed in New Orleans for five years okay. uh, working in the area. Judge Laverne's son, Lance, and yes. I were classmates okay. at Baton Rouge High School. Uh-huh. Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but uh, I have a great fondness for Judge Laverne. Judge Luke Laverne. Uh, uh, for the uninitiated, help explain what family law is. Most people, I think, think that family law is only about divorces and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a better understanding of what family law is? Okay, so so family law does start with divorce. Um, I've learned on the campaign trail that a lot of people confuse family court with juvenile court. They mm-hmm. think that I'm just, you know, or or that if you are an attorney working in family court, you're just working with children. But that's that's more the realm of, of juvenile court. Mm-hmm. So family law starts with a divorce, um, and we call them ancillary matters um, that come along with the divorce. And those ancillary matters are custody, child support, mm-hmm. interim spousal support, and um, and permanent spousal support. Mm-hmm. And then also, once you get past those issues, there are community property issues, and that's just basically the division of property between people who are formally married. Mm-hmm. Um, also in family court, we deal with domestic violence issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, when they go to the Bowdard Women's Program to apply for uh, petition for protection from domestic abuse, they may think that it's criminal in nature. And um, and the criminal court does, you know, hear those types of cases. But when it's a dispute between a former dating partner or a husband and a wife, um, it's normally heard in family court. Does your responsibility as a family court attorney uh, raise conflicts with you and your personal ethics with regard to some of the issues that you see mm-hmm. domestic violence uh, child abuse things of that sort my sister's an attorney yeah yes you know sometimes we go back and forth about right. about that issue how do you handle the ethical dilemmas that might arise from uh, your professional responsibilities as a family court lawyer? Well, if I'm thinking about domestic violence, um, 
it's difficult if you are representing somebody or you're defending somebody who seems to have um, actually perpetrated the offense that, that, you know, that he's being accused of. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so the way that I reconcile it is I, you know, become a little bit of a counselor and I look for ways to um, have that client find ways to help him or herself. And um, being in Judge Woodruff White's courtroom, it's even easier to tap into those resources because we're looking for anger management courses. Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking for counseling for those people. Um, we are looking for a parenting classes for those people if they're abusing spouses and children. And so I think what I try to do is to take each client as they come and I try to look at their circumstances and what brought them to the particular place, because mm-hmm. there's, there's always something in someone's background if they're doing something like abusing another person, mm-hmm. um, where they probably have been victims of abuse themselves. And the only way to address that is to look at what, you know, what they've suffered and, um, and, and try to see if, if we can cure that. And so that's that's sort of how I, I reconcile that. I I don't um, I don't do I, my, I don't practice myself, and I don't advocate trying to um, get someone off um, who has a problem with that. I I, I advocate um, you know looking at what the problem is and seeing how it can be addressed mm-hmm. because ultimately, if there's a father or a mother who is abusing children or is abusing a spouse, there's still a family. Um, and when children are involved, the children still love their parents, um, whether they're abusers or not. And so you want to try to find a way to um, keep the family together and keep everybody healthy uh, um, and try to eliminate or mitigate um, bad circumstances. When you find yourself in a situation, I, I know you're not a judge yet. Mm-hmm. When you find yourself in a situation as a representative of a party in in these kinds of cases, uh, if a judge is led to recommend counseling, mm-hmm. does the court system provide the monies necessary to uh, receive the counseling? One of the dilemmas I have, uh-huh. getting into my prickly points now, yes. one of the dilemmas I have is that often in criminal cases, mm-hmm. uh, the district attorney uh, refers people to alternative sentencing, right. uh, counseling programs, anger management programs, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. But the success rate is not what it could be because people can't avail themselves of the services because they don't have the money I understand. to do that. Mm-hmm. And so taking that experience and translating it into a family court situation, if a judge says you need to go to anger management, mm-hmm. does the court then provide uh, uh, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, at a reduced charge or or, or at no charge mm-hmm. so that the person can actually take advantage of those uh, services? 
So what we try to do, because I have worked behind the scenes as a research attorney, Mm -hmm. like I said, for Judge Woodruff White and for Judge Luke Laverne, what we try to do is we try to look at the incomes of people who come, you know, before the court Mm -hmm. and um, and pinpoint mental health professionals that will help people on what we call a sliding scale. And so they'll look at what their income is mm-hmm. and try to provide the services at, an, at a price that they can afford. Now, the court itself does not provide the services, but um, we definitely try to partner with people in the community, um, You know, look into resources for people who otherwise would not be able to afford um, mental health counseling or mental health assistance. <sighs> In those cases, uh, counseling usually takes a little while before there's any real uh, success that comes from it. You don't go twice and all of a sudden everything is fine. So what's the time frame generally for those types of things? So it really depends. Um, It really depends on the severity of, you know, what the problem is. there is a place, and as you were saying that, I was remembering a place called Family Services of Greater Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they offer free services. I think they also may offer services on a, on a sliding scale. Um, but they have programs put in place whereby um, once you identify what the problem is, they have a timeline for you know how long it should take to address the problem acutely, and then um, what kind of program you can transition into Mm -hmm. in order to get long-term care. Let's turn the page a little bit. Okay. Uh, You guys, family court, when I say you guys, uh, family court handles uh, property successions? It does. In in case of a death? Well, no, so not successions. Um, Civil district court handles successions. We handle um, community property partitions. For example, um, husband and wife marry and they purchase a home, they purchase cars, they purchase furniture, and so those things have to be divided when a divorce happens. And so that's what we handle. We, We try to help people divide assets equally. Is it a formula that you all employ, or, or or is it a case by case situation? So we look for we look to equalize, mm-hmm. and so, um, for example, if um, there is furniture valued at a certain amount, and then um, there may be some other personal assets valued at a certain amount, we try to make sure that husband gets. You know, he may want the watches or. Um, I don't know, some appliances, and then wife may want a bed or a, a kitchen set. And so we look at those values and we try to, we, like, you know, we try to say, like, okay, this kitchen set may cost $100 and these appliances may cost $100. And so we try to, like, balance it mm-hmm. and equalize to make sure that when they come out of the partition, that everybody's sort of getting an equalizing share. Why is it? that women don't pursue child support in the court system, uh, avail themselves to the court system appropriately to receive child support when they separate from their spouses and or significant others. 
So normally, my experience they, is that they, they don't they do. They don't. It. They don't do it. Okay. They, 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 they don't do it, and they usually come up with this thing about, well, if I do that, then he won't spend any time with Johnny or Jane mm-hmm. uh, because he thinks I'm forcing him uh, to do something that he doesn't want to do. Right. Is that? Just my experience, because I have them coming in here quite a lot with that experience. Really? Okay. Is, is that something that you see in the courtroom on your side of So it? I don't see that a whole lot, um, especially if it were um, people who were formerly married. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, when we, we file a petition for divorce, we file the ancillary matters you know, connected with the petition for divorce. And one of those things would be child support. Now, sometimes, um, you know, you, you kind of take it on a case-by-case basis, and it depends on the relationship of the parties, they may work something out whereby, you know, like what you're saying, mom feels like dad might not spend as much time with the children if he feels like he's being placed on child support. A lot of men I have found, especially in non-support court, um, where those are normally state cases, or they don't like to be placed on child support. They feel as though I will do for my child, I'll buy things for my child if if requested, um, but I don't want to be forced to pay child support. So I, w- I think or feel like a lot of those situations would be um, situations where they were unmarried parties and um, and mom applies for child support through the state and she gives up on pursuing it because um, her chief concern is to have dad be more physically involved with the children. Um, and, and then what I notice is it's just frustrating. If, you, if you're a mom trying to pursue child support through the state, um, you know, sometimes uh, pay or, payees change uh, residences, they change jobs to, um, to avoid paying child support. And I find that there are some people who get discouraged with trying to chase a payee around. Um, you but know. they're owed something. They are and owed their something. their children are owed something. They are. I and agree. the mother in this case, and I'm not trying to be sexist, I'm, but, but usually it's mothers who are complaining mm-hmm. that fathers are not paying child support. Right. The mother, in my opinion, has to be an advocate not for herself, for her but child. for the child right. and or children. Correct. And children are suffering because this person has decided that I'm not going uh, to, to, to pay what the court has said I need to pay. Now, in response to that, what is it that a prospective judge would do? How, how, how would a judge respond? So if, 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 if John Doe is brought before the court and John Doe is eight months behind in child support, uh, what what is it that what alternatives does the judge have in in a family court situation to respond to that situation? So what the thing that we have in place to try to enforce child support is contempt. And so um, that's the tool the judge has. But um, truly, um, it's frustrating. I, I can understand because um, the judge only has so much authority um, and it has to follow the rules, and the rules are that people deserve notice and an opportunity to be heard. And so, 
um, when someone owes child support or when there's a situation where child support needs to be set, uh, the judge has to look to see if once the pleadings are drafted and filed, that those pleadings that are requesting child support are actually served properly by law enforcement in order for that person to appear in court. And so once that person appears in court and that amount is set, then there's another court date most probably set for review to make sure that, you know, dad is paying the child support that he was ordered to pay. Mm -hmm. Some people don't show up. And if if dad was served to be there and he doesn't show up, then the judge can issue a bench warrant. But um, just because a bench warrant is issued doesn't mean dad is is picked up right away. Mm -hmm. Usually something has to happen like, you know, dad is stopped by the police for a broken taillight and they they run his license and they find out that, that, you know, there's a warrant out for his arrest for for non-payment of child support. And then he's arrested, put in jail, and he will have what's called a child support hold on him and will not be able to be released until... Um, a new court date is set or a certain amount of child support is paid. So you have to go through this procedural Correct. thing. Correct. Uh, and, and quite often at the end of, and I'm not complaining, I'm, I'm, I'm just venting. No, I mean, I understand. I, I can understand from the outside looking in that. that um, well, on the other end of this yeah. is if he's in jail, he's going to lose his job. Correct. <laughs> and Correct. if he loses his job, Correct. he's not going to be able to pay Anyway, right, and so so the judges, I, I would say all four of the judges, because there are four judges in the family court here in Baton Rouge, um, they realize that they recognize that, and um, they try to look at what his work schedule is, mm-hmm. um, or or ask, you know, how would me putting you in jail during these times, uh, you know, affect your your ability to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so judges do try to work around that. If if dad doesn't work um, on weekends, then we'll try to put him in jail on weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, the alternative, and I know what Judge Woodruff White does a lot, is litter detail. And so, you know, instead of, um, you know, being placed in jail so that dad can be out to be able to, to go to work, um, he's ordered to perform a certain amount of community service okay. and, and can't be released from that until, you know, until he's fulfilled that obligation. Okay. You, in addition to your pursuit of the law, you're a mother. I am. Uh, you're a wife. Mm-hmm. You are active in this community. You work with Jack and Jill. I do. Uh, you are an AKA. Mm-hmm. My wife is an AKA. Okay. Uh, uh, is it gratifying to you to have the opportunity to serve the community in these uh, other ways in addition to serving the community through your professional uh, practice? It absolutely is. And and I guess I should first say that um, I always think of my profession as a service. Um, There are a great many people that I help. And on the days where, you know, the money is low um, or my tolerance is low, um, where it gets frustrating, I have to remember all the people who call back after the cases have finished and just say, you know, thank you. 
Um, there are a lot of people that I run across that, that really feel like I am there for them in one of the toughest times of their lives. And, and I find that to be a community service in itself. Mm-hmm. I also find um, reducing my fees or, or doing pro bono work or, um, uh, or working through my LLC affordable divorces to reduce the amount that I charge um, to be a community service because it helps a great many people who really need help um, in, in, a, in a realm that a lot of lawyers don't like. A lot of lawyers shy away from family law because it is um, emotional and frustrating and the cases last a long time, especially if children are involved. Now, um, you asked about um, Jack and Jill. Um, and and th- so through Jack and Jill, we realize that our children um, are given a lot, are very fortunate, and and we have community service arms in Jack and Jill where we're we have the ability to help other children, and so we provide services like Breakfast with Santa every year, which is our Baton Rouge chapter Jack and Jill signature event, where children who otherwise would not be able to have you know a happy Christmas can come and enjoy Santa Claus and gifts and a hot breakfast and and just be loved by people who care. Um, and so I find that to be extremely gratifying. Um, I love being a mother. I love the, the look of my daughter's face um, when, uh, you know, she comes down on Christmas morning. It's her favorite holiday. And um, and so I, find, I get a lot of uh, fulfillment in being able to give back to children who otherwise would not be able to enjoy the things that my child can can enjoy because because I do have a job that helps me provide for her. Um, I also work through. Um, the links, and as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm seeing that there's a sort of a pattern um, in my community service because in the links, I also work with services to youth mm-hmm. um, at Buchanan Elementary with the Rosebuds Club, and the Rosebuds Club was for young girls to learn um, etiquette and um, to be exposed to women who were professionals, so they could ask questions and want, you know, to sort of model after us, um, and, and to talk about careers and and just have a club where they felt like they belonged somewhere and and they felt like there was something um, that they could reach for. Um, um, and I'm just I'm trying to think there were a good many projects, you know, also in links, international services where we would expose kids to to um, careers in, in international in the international realm. And so I, I have to say that I find a lot of um, I get a lot of fulfillment out of working with children. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, I found that when I became a mother, that um, that I, I almost love nothing more than, um, than than pouring myself and and everything that I have and everything that I know and all the love that I have into my children. And um, and, and I, I try to do that for the children that I work with. And um, and, and you know, so I feel very fortunate to have that because not only am I giving to them, they're giving they're giving a lot to me, and um, and, and you really are able to see um, how children grow, how they blossom mm-hmm. when you give them, you water them the way that they need to be watered, and and how they really are um, our future. You mentioned an LLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yours. You, it you, is mine. Okay. Yes. So you're an entrepreneur. 
Um, so I, I hadn't thought of myself as that, but but yes, I, I was looking for a way um, to help people who ordinarily wouldn't be helped, mm-hmm. and I was looking for a way to do some consulting mm-hmm. um, in family law, and by that I mean I wanted to be able to have people come to the office and me guide them um, in their family law journey, in the divorce journey, child support journey, um, and, and then also not have to um, always be in a situation that is contentious because what you'll find as a family law attorney is that there are a good many, and I find especially the newer attorneys, um, they come out of law school and they're ready for a debate and, um, you know, they're, they're ready to, you know, to get in there and, and, and you know, just kind of fight for something mm-hmm. and, and sometimes overlook the fact that, um Concessions can be made and compromises can be reached without having to, um, you know, to to have such a contentious type of, of interaction. And so affordable divorces was also a, a way I was I was trying really hard. I consulted the bar to make sure that consulting was something that I could do mm-hmm. so that um, that I could help people. Um, on their journey with, you know, and try to eliminate some of the the, the contentious nature or the adversarial nature of family law issues. How are you, how is the LLC financed? Uh, as individuals come to you mm-hmm. or is it outside sponsorships that underwrite the work that you do? Okay, so, yeah, so, so I, was, I was hoping that I would get to the point where I would be able to get some outside um, help, but um, it, it's just me. <laughs> well, it's just me. One of the things that, that we tried to discuss when we're in this uh, venue has to do with the dilemmas of African-American entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the young man who produces this for us is an African-American entrepreneur. Many of the people who come through here are entrepreneurs and there seems to be a uniform dilemma mm-hmm. with support right. from within the African American community for African American entrepreneurs. Yes, is that your experience as well? So I hadn't actually, I, I hadn't looked because I, I had thought of grant writing. Um, you know, receive writing grants to receive money to help me do. Um, you know, do the work that I was speaking of. Um, I I had, you know, at least thought about doing something similar to what's done with the public defender's office to be able to offer services and family law um, and, and, you know, have it to be funded by an outside source. Um, But I know what you're talking about because my brother um, is definitely a career entrepreneur. Um, He's the owner of of a Black-owned business. and, and I see him, you know, trying to raise funds, mm-hmm. um, you know, find capital to to search for companies to purchase. Um, and, and he was successful. He, he purchased a, a company. I think it was a vitamin supplement company and grew the company. And then the goal was to grow the company and to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it became so profitable and he received so, so much recognition and especially during COVID, um, so much interest in people wanting to to help. And I, I say during COVID, but it was 
during COVID also was a, a revolutionary time for black America in that, you know, we were seeing the shootings of, of black men by police. And so a lot of my brother's, um, you know, former uh, classmates at Wharton, because he went to the U University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, um, a lot of the the majority friends that he had were looking for ways to invest in the black community. And through that, you know, in a business like his, um, that was marketing to the black community to be healthy, um, to, you know, take supplements, to exercise, to um, address, you know, issues with diabetes and, and high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So so um, most of my experience in, in the struggle to have things like that funded, um, I have witnessed, you know, through my, the efforts that my brother has put forth. Your husband is a dentist. He is. And uh, so two professional people mm -hmm. uh, have two children and... What are the dilemmas that you have raising African-American children in a city like Baton Rouge? Well, Even though you have access to economy that some people might not have. Yeah, so I think that, you know, one thing that um, that definitely my daughter's counterparts in, in her school don't realize is that, um, that it, you know, it's tough to um, to be in majority situations and be the only one. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's sort of why we have organizations like Jack and Jill, mm -hmm. where, um, where kids who, you know, come from parents who have resources can get together um, because they're sort of spread out in, you know, all of the schools across the city um, and, and don't have each other to bond with and and compare notes with, mm -hmm. um, and so you know, um, I have not noticed in my daughter, my youngest daughter, um, any internal struggle or any problem. Um, related to being the only one, but I still try to, to talk about it mm -hmm. um, and to make her aware of it and ask her questions about it um, so that we can keep those lines of communication open. Now, my older daughter, who's actually my bonus daughter, my, my husband was married before mm -hmm. um, he was married to me, and so Tate Elizabeth is 21 years old, and I've known her since she was two years old. And recently, a book was, a cartoon book was published um, where, uh, and the name of it, I believe, is My Skin Doesn't Blend In. And so it wasn't until uh, we started to talk about this book that she, she got, you know, kind of honest with us about how she felt, you know, being in environments where she was one of the few or the only one. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're still exploring that. Um, but, you know, she, her path was to go to an HBCU, um, a historically um, black college and university. She goes to Dillard in New Orleans. And in um, her experience is that, you know, she's she's 
happy for the um, the foundation that she had mm-hmm. and what she was exposed to, but she's also very happy about um, being able to attend an HBCU and discover things about herself that she, you know, in, in inadequacies that she thought she, you know, that she had um, self-esteem issues that she had that she hadn't addressed mm-hmm. when she was, you know, when she was younger that she realizes that, you know, needed to be dr- addressed at this point in her life. As a judge, assuming that uh, you're successful in your candidacy, uh, as much as a person who sits on the bench and renders decisions, uh, you're going to be seen in this community even more so than you already are as a mentor Mm -hmm. uh, and as an advocate for certain causes. If I were to ask you what were your primary causes that you would want to advocate for, what would that include? Um, So I I think that, um, you know, as I mentioned before, that I will continue to look for causes um, that benefit children. And um, there was one other thing I was thinking of. Oh, so I I probably will continue the work of Judge Lisa Woodruff White with the Self-Help Center. That sort of the Self-Help Center is a um, a program that was put into place in family court for um, people who couldn't afford, you know, um, divorce services. And it sort of mirrors what I was already doing with affordable divorces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, um, I you know, I, I, I worked closely um, with her in the beginning stages, more, more, more so just talking about it and talking about how um, it could come to be. And so if I'm elected um, for the Division B seat, I will I will dedicate myself to keeping that particular program going. Um, I do also think that I will um, create a program um, in my division for, for young women um, to come into my chambers and to be mentored by me. Um, um, to be mentored by some of my colleagues who I know um, could make an impact. And so, um, you know, I, I think a, a lot of my work will be geared toward children, but in particular, young women, and more specifically, probably young black women. Having worked and been trained by Judge Laverne, Judge Woodruff White, what do you see as being the primary traits, characteristics, uh, things necessary to make you a successful judge? So I've had this conversation with, with um, Judge Woodruff White, because like I said, she is a mentor, and I admire her greatly. And when we were working together, um, I, one of the things that I loved about her was that she was so thoughtful in all of her decision making. And, um, and sometimes when she was not sure which way to go, um, she would go into her office and pray. And so that was one thing that I did not know about her, you know, when I was working with her, but mm-hmm. that she shared with me since. And um, I just, um, you know, I think that I will, I will take from her, um, her compassion and her, um, her thoughtfulness and her um, commitment to look at each case on an individual basis and, of course, p- apply the law, but to, um, to make sure that she's making the best decision 
for that particular family at that particular time. And it, it sort of is kind of where my um, my motto for my campaign um, was born, fairness for our families, because I want to look at each family and their situation and their children and not just blanketly apply, you know, a 50-50 um, custody uh, plan if that's not what's right for that particular family. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I kind of would like to end that by saying um, that in my conversations, impartiality is is very important. Um, it's it's important to um, to try to not to look at who the attorneys are, um, what what outside influences that you you know there might might be present, but to um, to look at each family and each situation and try to be as impartial as possible and as fair as possible. Baton Rouge is a small town. Yes. And all you lawyers know each other. Uh, <laughs> a lot of For it. the most part, yes. Again, yeah, yes. One of the arguments I have with my sister all the time. Uh-huh. Um, so when you're when you ascend to the bench mm-hmm. and coming before you are two attorneys that you have had uh, collegiality with. Correct. Uh, uh-huh. uh, how is it that you're able and I know there's a certain degree of professionalism that allows you to maintain a distance. Mm-hmm. But if you're really tight with so and so, right? And, yeah, uh-huh. and the other person is just somebody that you know, right? Uh, how do you tamp down the anxiety that one might have that you're rendering a decision based upon relationship and not necessarily based upon? fairness because nobody's going to always if you don't rule in their favor they're never going to think that what you did was fair yeah so you know uh, after I left um, the family court bench you know I've made friends with the judges up there like we we did things together we went out to lunch together Mm -hmm. Um, you know we we formed bonds and friendships and um, and I always say this about Judge Baker that um, you know no matter what decision she she makes on on my case, I always feel like it's fair. And so, you know, sometimes I'm against somebody who, you know, may not sort of be in our little network of lawyers that sort of came, all came up together. But I admire Judge Baker because I always feel like even if there is an, another attorney that, you know, I know she spends more time with, um, you know, that she just really likes, um, that I always feel like she looks at the case before her mm-hmm. and that she's fair. And so um, so I, I'm going to take that example from her. And I know that that we're human. And, and sometimes, you know, if a friend of yours comes before you and you're like, boy, you know, I really like to help her out, you know, and, and help her win her case. But you know, it's my job to um, to put those things aside mm-hmm. and, and look at the people because it's the community that that you're here to serve. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I've had clients who've walked away, not in East Baton Rouge Parish, in another parish, where they felt like you know they're all connected, mm-hmm. and I'm never going to get a fair chance in this court because of the politics. Mm-hmm. And so, 
I just don't want anyone to ever walk away feeling like um, one attorney had an advantage over the other because of a friendship that I might have with one particular attorney. Mm-hmm. Because I I know I've, I've been on the end of it where the client feels like, you know, this is my child that, that they're making this decision about. This is my life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I just don't ever want it to be that somebody walks away feeling like they didn't get a fair shake because of a relationship that, that a judge or an, an, an attorney have. You're running for Division B? Correct. Is this a geographic uh, district? And if so, what are the boundaries? Uh, yeah, who can so, vote, I guess is what yeah, I'm Yeah, who can vote. Okay, so of course so I told you that it was um, that this district was drawn in, I believe, 1990, um, so that mostly minority neighborhoods could vote. And so it's, it's mostly minority neighborhoods. Um, it, it runs along Airline Highway. Um, it includes uh, part to South Baton Rouge, North Baton Rouge, um, uh, Park Forest, Eden Park, Zion City, Melrose Place, um, you know, just a, a good min- a good mixture of Scotlandville, mm-hmm. just a good mixture of minority neighborhoods so okay. that, that we could, you know, we as, as African Americans could be represented on the bench. As you have been campaigning and going door to door, which I'm assuming you're doing, yes. uh, what's been the reception of people? Do, do they know that you're running for family did, did they know that this seat was coming up do they have an idea of what it is do you have to spend a lot of time educating people as to what it is that you're running for? you do yes um yeah so we started out putting out signs you mm-hmm. know um with my face on them um because you know i am you know i'm, I'm not i don't have name recognition I, i'm not somebody that i think a, a lot of people in the community may know and so um so yeah, we started with signs, and then we do go door to door, and um, people. Some people were aware that Judge Woodruff White um, decided to retire. Mm-hmm. This is a, a six-year term that she was reelected for, and she's one year into the term. And so there are some people who realize that you know read in the paper that a special election is coming up, and so this is a special election, and um, and, and we try to let them know you know this is going to be a vacant seat. And and there is no incumbent and, um, you know, get out and vote. And I know that mm-hmm. a lot of people, um, you know, prefer or are just more inclined to vote in presidential elections or, you know, bigger elections where we're electing congressmen or somebody mm-hmm. on the state or national level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I try to impart upon people the the importance of family court and and who it affects and how it affects people mm-hmm. um and I, and I try to to let people know I have a family I have a blended family these issues have affected me um you know I I, I know these issues on a personal and a professional level mm-hmm. and I know a lot of other people know these issues on a personal level and so I try to connect with people on that because I said you know even if you haven't experienced um any issues in family court Court, you know somebody who has and so um, I just try to impart upon people that it's really important for you to get out and vote in this special election 
to make sure that families who are separating, who are transitioning their dynamic are taken care of. And your election is on the October ballot? It is on the October ballot. The, the election day is October 9th. Early voting is September 25th through October 2nd. We encourage people to get out and vote early if they can. Um, and that's it. I really appreciate you taking the time to come by and share with us today. And uh, I hope that uh, you have great success you. in your uh, pursuit of this office. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for viewing. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next time. Mm -hmm.